Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. chapter 19, 41 through 48. And the last time the message was titled The Unseen Triumph. You know, something about when you teach, if, if you're really trying to do it right, you think about what do people think when they hear your teaching? You know, what is their experience? What if they don't know the Bible or know the history Right? We have new people come in all the time and there's an interest, but they don't have that uh, cache of uh, understanding yet. So I, I kind of go through this. You know, I, and I did this when I taught the triumphal entry over the years. Triumphal entry, here comes Jesus in Jerusalem. But somebody who doesn't know the Lord and maybe is seeking may look at that and go, what's the big deal? Jesus was riding on a donkey and uh, there was no participation from the Roman government. There was no participation from the religious class. So what's so triumphal about it? And really, what you have to look at is what's going on behind the scenes. And a lot of times when we're strictly in the physical and temporal world, we miss what's going on in God's world, the, where the angels are, where the heavens are, what he's doing behind the scenes. So when you look at this triumphal entry, you see that God put a lot of preparation in this. Now, even for Christians, did you know that there was only one day in all of human history that any Messiah could show up? One day. One day. That's it. People have claimed to be the Messiah in my lifetime. Um, you know, after Jesus, before Jesus. But God calculated it to one day. I'm going to share a quick calculation with you. I was kind of up here last Sunday doing it from memory and kind of mumbling to myself, but I'll make it a little bit more clear. So when you look at the Babylonians taking Jerusalem, expatriating a lot of the people through slavery to Babylon, and Daniel the prophet's praying, Gabriel responds to him and, and says, you know, the Lord has answered your prayer, and these are the things that are going to take place. So we're talking deep into the 6th century B.C., Okay. So Gabriel tells Daniel, don't worry about it. A lot of things that God is doing behind the scenes and the Messiah is coming. So he did a calculation. Nobody could know this because Babylon was in charge. Persians weren't even there yet. He basically said that from the decree that the Persian king Artaxerxes Longimanus gives to send the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem, that's a, that's a starting point, which was March 14th, 445 B.C., all the way until Messiah, the, the prince, the exact triumphal entry, which happened on 4-6-32 A.D., would be 173,880 days, or 483 Shavuot, or seven-year period. So there was a calculation. You wonder why people were excited when Jesus came? Well, sure it was exciting, because if you knew the prophecy, which every Jewish person knew to some extent, you knew that he was going to show up on that day. So even Christians sometimes don't know these things. It's deep embedded into the Scripture. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, today, the message is titled, Misrepresenting God. 
Well, God had set up a system in Jerusalem. He set up the laver. He set up the Holy of Holies. He set up the Ark of the Covenant. He set up a lot of things. And he, His presence was there in addition to being omnipresent. And He tasked the priests and the Levites to be proper, to be professional, to be loving and respectful, and to properly represent Him. However, over time, things happen and corruption, got, religious corruption got in. And we see that Jerusalem was actually sacked a few times over the years, if you know your history. So, um, we can look at this on a large scale. Jesus is going to share more prophecies with us, or His followers. We get the benefit of seeing it today. Uh, But at the same time, He shares the prophecies. But at the same time, we can also look at how do we represent God in a small way, right? And we're going to cover this in three parts. So, jumping in in verse 41... Luke chapter 19, there's a lot to unpack here. And I hope you like history because Jesus' prophecy is tied into a historical event that happened 40 years later. So we're going to jump in. Verse 41, it says, Now as He, Jesus, drew near... Now he's, we, I'm not going to go over it. Um, we covered this last Sunday. This is a, continu- a continuous and contiguous thought. Jesus is going, He's drawing near Jerusalem, He's getting closer. He saw the city of Jerusalem and He wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So one out of three is the prophecy. Jesus is giving a prophecy, which he did many a times. Uh, Verse 41 through 42 is a sobering assessment. Jesus weeps over a city as he's approaching it. Again, in that city was the temple and the courts and all the accoutrements of what was supposed to properly represent God. Jesus knew, though, within 40 years that the Roman-Jewish wars would take place. If you know your history, A.D. 66 through A.D. 70, and culminating in A.D. 73, if you count the last stronghold of Masada, which is a very famous stronghold right, that takes place in Israeli history. In addition to Jesus being fully God and fully man, he fulfilled the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And as a prophet, he's giving a spiritual assessment of the city. Now, this is a little bit of a learning curve because Jesus comes sort of in this transitional time. right? When you look at the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, 31-34, Jeremiah tells the Jews that a new covenant or a new testament is coming. It's right embedded in the old covenant. God doesn't do things. He doesn't do bait and switch. He doesn't try to trick us. He's very clear when you read His Word. So a new covenant is coming. So Jesus is in this time where He still has to go to the cross and die for our sins. Okay? And then like this new covenant in Christ is ushered in. But there's still sort of this transitional period where most of the people back then would totally understand a lot of the things he said because they're still used to the Old Testament period of the Old Covenant. And we have to get up to speed on that. But when you look through the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, this happened a lot. The prophets would say, Jerusalem, you're supposed to represent God. What are you doing? And again, we can look at this as a history lesson and go on our merry way this week. 
Or we could say, well, in some small way, how am I representing God? Am I bringing people closer to God by my behavior and my words? Or am I pushing people away from God? And if we're honest with ourselves, and in my history of growing in the Lord, I've made some real bad blunders that I hope people forgot in 2023. <laughs> but it's, we're human, right? We just try to do better next time. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Now imagine Jesus going and the crowds and the, the rejoicing. It's an amazing thing. We talked about the crowds last Sunday. We see crowds today. They're not a monolith. You could almost see Jesus, and I don't know that this happened, but with his, his eyes, he could see the people. But with deity being God, he could also see at the same time the walls coming down, the fires being set, the Roman soldiers coming in. That's why he wept. He wept for the people. Um, you know, a lot of things are going on all because the vanguards of the faith, the leaders and the culture had become corrupt. Now, there is a biblical principle, which I believe carries through even today in the United States, that leadership reflects the culture. Remember King Saul in the Old Testament. Tall, handsome, oh, this is what we want. He looks like a king. What does a king look like? What does a king look like? Well, we hope that our king or our leaders have character more than appearance. But man, it's just a thing with culture. We see this in American culture. We look at some of the leaders of, of Europe and the United States and the things that are going on. The more the culture becomes decadent, the more it's accepting of these type of leadership. Unfortunately, in this situation, the leadership was the, supposedly the spiritual leadership. And they were doing it wrong. So I'm kind of setting, up the, setting this up here. Weeping in general, this is an interesting thing because we're going to see a lot of things happen that seem to be contradictory, but they're not. Aren't we contradictory sometimes? Something tragic happens in our life and we can sort of see God's hand, but we can cry at the same time. We can kind of go back and forth. So there's a lot of things happening here, right? Um, in Ezekiel 18.23... Because, listen, judgment has to come, right? Because of sin, these things have to take place. In Ezekiel 18.23, which I taught this book, probably one of the hardest books I've ever taught, but uh, 23, God says through the prophet, He says, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God. And not that he or she should turn from his ways and live? Turning from your evil ways is considered repentance. You're turning from your self-directed ways and you're turning towards God. God always opens the door for change. And good parents do that too, don't we, with our kids. They're being bratty, they're being bad, and they, they have a, an epiphany and you're like, sometimes we get surprised. And they, they you know, it's not about you know, everybody's apology mongers. It's more about a change of behavior. That's really what we want to see. And God wants to see that from His children too. But what I just read tells us that God is not gleeful about punishment. And i got to be honest with you, when I was young, and this is why I turned away from religion and went my own way for a long time before I got saved, is that I thought as a young person the same thing. I was taught in my religion that I just, I just couldn't do it right. I was that that screw-up of a kid that God had that I might as well just quit because whatever I do is going to be wrong. And I didn't see the mercy. I didn't see the grace. 
I didn't see the idea about repentance, so I walked away. And a lot of people are doing that today, sadly enough, because the representatives, let's go back to that. How do we, and even as a church, as leaders, how do we represent God? Sometimes I almost feel like I'm God's PR person or his attorney, you know. I say, you know, he's really good, and like I go sort of overboard. God doesn't need me to do that. But what I'm basically doing is I'm explaining what the scriptures say, right? God wants us to come, right, to him. The prodigal, parable of prodigal son. It's really a horrible story about this, how this, this wayward kid totally uh, ruined the reputation of his father, and the father still waited on the horizon every day and as he sees his son coming and does something unbecoming of a patriarch because he loves his son so much. And that's how God feels about us. And once I started to understand that, I came back to God because the people that were representing him in me becoming a Christian, they gave me the right message. And again, we don't say it to say it because there is judgment. We know that. But there's mercy and grace, and that hopefully staves people off from judgment if they do the right thing, whether on an individual level or, in this case, on a city or the group of spiritual vanguards of the faith, so to speak. So Jesus, he, he weeps for the city. He didn't weep for his own crucifixion. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. He didn't complain about him having to go to the cross. He did it joyfully because he loves us. But he wept for the city. You know, there's a lot of things we could learn about Jesus. And one of them is that when we go through trials, that we don't live in a bubble. Other people go through trials too. I'm, listen, the last, 2023 has not been a great year in the DeProsimo home. I'll just tell you that right now. Hoping if we make it that long, 2024 is better. Uh, but we still minister. We still do, I'm still a pastor. I still do weddings. I still, you know, do counseling. Um, and you know what it is? I've learned from my Lord. I've learned that I could be going through something, but maybe many people in the church are going through something too, right? We, we all have to, in the family or the community of a church, we need to help each other and lift each other up and pray for each other. Amen? All right. <laughs> so, verse 42 Uh, What is this thing about the day of visitation? Well, Jesus was referring really specifically to this prophecy in Daniel. And again, it's in Genesis 49.10. It's in Haggai 2, 7 and 8. These are what I call time-sensitive prophecies. They came and went and the doors closed. Nobody can come and claim to be the Messiah again if you know the Scripture. So could the siege have been averted? Yes, it could have been. Um, King Josiah in the Old Testament, that's reason I named my son Josiah, he was one of the coolest people um, in a spiritual way that, that I looked at the Bible and said, I love that guy. I want my son to be like him. King Josiah set up, judgment was coming, Babylon was coming. And King Josiah made a national fast and proclamation and he tore down the, the idols and the false uh, you know, teaching places, the demonic worship. He did everything he could as one man, as the king, and what God said through his prophets is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put my protective hand over you and the city, and they're not going to get in. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, nobody. And that's actually what happened during the life of King Josiah. Really neat stuff. Unfortunately, um, here, they didn't consult with God. And 
what they tried to do is now I got to get a little bit into the history. So for those of you that aren't history buffs, I apologize in advance, um, but we got to do this. <laughs> so if you ever read about the the wars, right? And there was a lot of tit for tat between the Jewish leadership and the Romans, right? There was a lot of back and forth, and unfortunately, people got caught in the crossfire. But the the zealots and the Sicarii, Sicarii, actually we get the word today, Sicario. They were the dagger men. They were the hit men. They were the ones that were constantly trying to provoke Rome by ambushing soldiers and stuff to bring about a sort of uh, conquering Messiah concept in the first century. But that's not what God had for them. They totally, he said, these things are hidden from your eyes. They totally miss Jesus in their desire for a revolution. You hear people say that today. Listen, I've studied 20th century history. Be careful when you call for a revolution. Because there's a lot of heartache that comes with that. And some of you are from countries that you've escaped that have had these types of events. We don't want that here. It's not going to be pretty. But they also wanted it in that city. So the Sakari, the Zealots were running the show. Um, It failed miserably, if you read your history book. In addition, 132 AD, they couldn't stop with this conquering Messiah concept, which God did not have for them in the first and second century. Okay? Bar Kokhba was another one. He rose up and says, I'm the Messiah. Try to fight with the Romans. It was a horrible bloodbath. And what kind of witness do we send when we try to force God's hand and God isn't in it? Again, hopefully none of us are planning a revolution, (laughs) but you, you can bring it down to our level and say, how do I handle my faith? How do I handle even my prayers? You know, you can go on TV and listen to some of these preachers and they tell you pretty much to demand God to give you stuff. Demand it from them. Keep bugging them to the point where maybe a lot of it's fleshy and carnal and worldly. What does that say about us as people? How about when we pray? I know for me, I ask for things, but I do... Pretty much at the end, after all my my wish list, I'm like, you know what, Lord, whatever your will is, maybe the things I'm praying for, if I actually got them, would, would hurt me somehow. Hurt me spiritually, I don't know. So at the end of the day, we give God first place in our life. Amen? And that's the way it's supposed to be. However, these were an example of, we're going to force this and God's going to have to back us up. And He didn't. He didn't. So the spiritual peace, right? Christ died for our sins. We know that. That was incumbent upon God and it was accomplished. Anyone today who trusts in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that He died for your sins, you're good. You're clean. You're spotless in front of the Lord because Christ took your punishment and He took your crimes as well. However, the physical peace or the circumstantial peace was incumbent upon the leadership and the culture, and that was not accomplished. It was not accomplished. So, even if things turned around and Jesus said, you're in a good place, He would still have to die for the sins of the world. That wouldn't change. Right? That's something we can't do ourselves. Now, let me, I'll go into the, some of the historical part, and then I'll get back to the rest of what Jesus says here. In verse 43, Jesus is prophecy was so powerful that some suspected that Jesus said this after the AD 66 through 70 war but even historians will tell you that are atheists no Jesus wasn't on the earth at that time period there's no way or maybe the disciples made it up or maybe all these maybes and and it just doesn't fit 
Uh, actually, going back to Daniel's prophecy, and I've had people try to challenge. That's fine. Challenge it. You should. If you're seeking the things of God, challenge it. Right? God says, come, let us reason together. However, atheists who are paleographers and archaeologists also accede, concede to the Septuagint which Daniel 9 was in before the event took place. It's sort of hard to whitewash that. Same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, that couldn't happen like that. Oh, look up the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can very easily get it and find out all the different uh, you know, scrolls and, and the vials the they were in and what was on it and the interpretation. Come on, man. It's, these things were said beforehand. Nobody can do that. Only God can see the future. And let's put this in perspective. God would tell His people things that would happen hundreds of years in advance. 300, 600, 1,000. Revelation, 2,000. The United States is not even 300 years old and we act like we've been here forever. So think about how far in advance God says these things are going to happen. Nobody even lives there. How could that be a thriving city? Because God can see the future. And once you start seeing that, you have to be intellectually honest with yourself and say, I'm either going to follow this or I'm not, but you, you can't whitewash this stuff. It's not going to happen. So Jesus says a few things. And, and again, the people were looking, if you are familiar with the Maccabees and the Maccabean-style takeover, this is what the people were looking for. And God was like, nope. God the Son, the Messiah, the suffering servant has to come first. So let's look at this. And A... He said, Jesus said they're going to build an embankment around you. Under the Roman general Titus, he took four Roman legions and they actually built an embankment. So at the outer wall of Jerusalem, they actually built earth and this took them a long time to do. They built an embankment around the city so nobody could escape. Jesus got that exactly. B, they'll surround the city. They stopped all ingress and egress. You look it up. The siege of Jerusalem. C. Unfortunately, many of the inhabitants were killed, including women and children, because the people inside, they were so um, rabid. Like they, they wanted the, the kids and the women to pick up swords. And this is a true story because there's a lot of historians who have gone through this, Jewish and Roman, and they all say the same thing. That the Sicarii and the, uh, the Zealots actually burned one of the food supplies to get people to realize, well, we're going to run out of food. We need to die fighting because we're going to be hungry if we don't. That's, I don't know how that's reflective of God. I, I don't see that anywhere. D, he says they will level you. Let me read you another scripture. And this is just to, because I, I get a lot of seekers and a lot of people that aren't sure. People watching online and like, hmm. Let me see if I can find some cracks in the armor. Let's do it. Micah 3.12, written centuries before this took place. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. It's a very powerful word. Plowed or leveled. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains, the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. You might say, well, when Micah was written, that was before the Babylonian incursion. But under Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't plow Jerusalem. 700 years later, the, the um, how do I say this, the evolution or the, uh, the advances in earth-moving equipment has been phenomenal. 700 years, a lot of inventions can take place. The Romans actually built 
plows. They were earth movers. They weren't caterpillars of today, which can do pretty much anything in a day with hydraulics. But for an ancient civilization, they plowed Jerusalem. There was a visceral hatred um, back and forth. It was, it was mutual. So Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. Okay. I'm boring you with history partially. Uh, so the Roman general Titus did, he was, he was good at what he did, but he tried to hold back his men in many ways. You know, let the temple stand. It's, you know, this is no matter what happens at the end, that, that should stay there. Uh, there was a lot of things he tried to do. There were negotiations, right, over the wall with certain people that they could consider um, go-betweens. Uh, Titus's men were so, they had such hatred that they actually, nobody really knows who did it. They disobeyed the general's order and they set fire to the temple, right? Romans and, and Jewish people in the city, they hated each other. So um, there's a fire now to the city. The temple's on fire. The gold from the temple structure melts into the stones and gravity pulls it down. So what do the soldiers do? They break up all the stones And they even dig. They're looking for any piece of ounce of gold that they could take when it cooled off. And they can take it like spoils of war, so to speak. So not one stone was left upon another. Back then, people were like, what is Jesus talking about? He knew this. He knew it was coming, right? So uh, Josephus actually gives us a Jewish man himself, was on the inside, uh, eventually gets captured, says, okay, I didn't really want this anyway. They use him to be a go-between. As a historian, he wrote The War of the Jews. I actually read books 5 and 6. This, this guy is very detailed about what happened. So, what's left? What we know is the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall that a lot of observant Jews pray because that's the only remnant left of the Temple and the Temple Mount and all the things that were there. So, Jesus wept because... In God's mind, He gave us free will, but He doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. Now, a few quick uh, historical anecdotes is that when General Titus was on his horse and he was riding on the outskirts of the city, assessing the situation, how are we going to get in, where are we going to breach the wall, because make sure that, it's, that they don't lose it, lose the war as soldiers. He rode on his horse around and you know, and he looked and he could see in some spots, depending on the height over the wall, he saw the famine, he saw the disease, he saw the bodies that they were pushing over the fence, people from the inside, right, over the wall that hit the ground. And he actually looked up and he said to God, I didn't do this. That's pretty powerful. Um, When General Titus was to take the uh, wreath of victory, for eventually breaching Jerusalem and claiming it again for the Romans, he said that he would not take the wreath. You can look this up. Because he felt that their own God has manifested his wrath against his own people. That's powerful. Now this happened a lot in the Old Testament where, this is an amazing thing, you talk about what kind of witness are we? So the people, maybe those of the valley, those of the seafaring people, they knew that the, the Israelites, Yahweh, they knew that He was the true God. And then sometimes when the Israelites would lose, the pagans would look at the situation and say, oh, their God is angry at them. 
So what you sort of have is this situation where outside forces realize the truth of who the true God is. A lot of the Romans and Greeks were tired of the Roman and Greek pantheon. Zeus, Apollo, you know, all of these false gods. And even if they were real, which they weren't, they were mean, they were nasty, they manipulated people. And a lot of them came to Judaism because when they started to read about who the true God is, first of all, when you're a polytheist, you've got to make sacrifices for all the different gods. There's just too many of them. So a lot of people leave these religions, even today, of polytheism and follow the one true God. It's a lot less work. (laughs) There's only one God you have to please. Uh, But you see his mercy and his goodness. So very interesting things that happened in this. And again, the witness was not there, but they still, the the general still asked pretty much the, the true God for for some mercy because of what he was trying not to do. Okay, let's go back to the scripture. I'm never usually this history intensive, but when you read Jesus' prophecy, it should blow your mind realizing that he said this four decades before it happened. And you wonder why he was weeping. Verse 40, because they wouldn't listen to him, right? You know, it isn't on a smaller scale, right? Sometimes God, you know, we, we, we want our way. And you, you know God is not putting a stamp of approval on it. I've been there, and I'm going to go my way anyway. And I do something, and I hurt myself somehow. I, you know, I'm, I'm at the maturity now where I just kind of smirk and go, I know, I did this to myself. I didn't listen. I didn't pray enough about it. Um, this is tragic, but we can do it on a much smaller level. Let God be who He is. And let us as worshipers be who we are and not try to take his position because <laughs> he's never stepping down from that throne and we're never taking it. Uh, verse 45, Jesus continues, or it says, Then he, Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out, and this is connected, those who bought and sold in it. So there's a temple courts and there's some activity happening. And Jesus says, It is written, My house. Because he's God the Son. God the Father's house is also his house. My house is a house of prayer. And again, he's quoting scripture, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. But they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So two out of three is the reason for the prophecy, or one of the reasons for the prophecy, right? So let's look at this. Um, the temple did actually a good job when the right people were running it and the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles. They did a really good job when things were going right, when there was spiritual revival. And a lot of the pagans believed in, in the Jewish people's God. We see this all throughout Scripture. There's some, uh, two of them that I'm familiar with that were pagans and became believers and are in the bloodline of the Messiah. Right? Powerful stuff. You look at the, the church where, you know, Jesus was a Jewish thing, and all these Greco Romans were coming into the faith. And they were like, what do we do? Like, we're being overrun by former polytheists. And they, they had to figure out how to minister to these people and what to tell them about their newfound faith. It's exciting. This is what happened when there's revival. We hope that we, there's more revivals in this country. 
But the house of worship was supposed to draw people to God. Now, some people may say to me, and I'm going to cover this, Pastor Joe, sometimes you're saying that God did it, and sometimes you're saying that people did it to themselves. Sometimes you're saying the Roman army did it. Sometimes you're saying it was the corruption of the religious system. And sometimes you're saying that... um, Whatever, I'm saying a lot of things. (laughs) But let me just say this, okay? There were what I would call ubiquitous factors. A lot of this, I I like algebra. There's a lot of unknowns and you got to find the the X, so to speak. But there's Ys and there's Twos. I'm sorry, some some of you I'm giving you nausea. But the thing is, uh, (laughs) when you look at the situation, ubiquitous, it was was happening, a, a lot of things were happening at the same time in a lot of different places. So God, and this is sometimes we, sometimes we say, well, God is judging. If you actually look at the history of Scripture and the history of the world, sometimes God didn't necessarily do as far as judge, but He just withdrew Himself. So, you know, spiritual force field, maybe not the best term, maybe for the younger generation, but with Jerusalem under Josiah, God kind of covered, you couldn't see it, He covered the city and protected it. And then there were times where God said, that doesn't represent me anymore. And he just lets go. So, yeah, a lot of things are happening at the same time. And I think especially in this situation, could God have stopped the Romans? Sure he could have. But who would he have given the leadership to? Vile, bloodthirsty, those people, Gentile-hating leaders that did not represent him. So he, like, And I see this too sometimes in Christianity, right? Um, you know, you see this ministry and you just know with your discernment something's not right. I've talked about this from the pulpit and then a few years later they're in the news. What a black eye to Christianity. I don't want to keep saying the same ministry movement, but adultery, sexual improprieties, you know, you know greed. That doesn't belong in a ministry. And God's like, okay, now it's done. I'm not, I'm not a part of it anymore. Let the authorities handle them. Okay. It's pretty heavy stuff here. In John 2, in Jesus's, early on in Jesus' ministry, we also see Him cleaning the temple, in a sense. And you, could you picture the, uh, the tables? And this is what they would do, like the money changers. Uh, and again, this happened in God's house. So they would say, Roman money is dirty. So we have tables set up and you could have you could do an exchange house. You can bring in your dirty Roman money and we'll give you clean temple money. But they would do it at a high rate. What do you think they did with the Roman money when they had sacks of it? You think they threw it away? Of course not. They used it when it was advantageous to them. So it's like, you know, when you go to uh I don't know, I, I don't really travel. What is it, the mark in Germany? And you bring your, your American cash and they give you so many marks. Um, if they're unscrupulous, you don't know. They give you a lot less marks for your American money and they keep the excess. And this was happening in God's house. Right? Wow. Um, B, they were also the selling of the needful sacrificial animals. And the poor person could only bring a dove and God put that in His law. If the person's in poverty, just let them give put the least expensive thing as possible because God honors the poor, right? So what they would do is they would not only have their clean money and dirty money, they also had their cages of doves. 
and they bring the dove to sacrifice and the religious, religious leaders would look at it and go, it's blemished, it's not good enough for God. Take your dove back. You have to buy our doves. Now, Tal- the Talmud is a Jewish writing, right? Jewish commentary. They even talked about how corrupt this system was. Uh, there's one report that the doves would be jacked up the price up to 20 times of what a normal dove would cost. So these people, you wonder why this stuff happened? Who, who's really seeing God in this, in this thing? And God's like, you know what? Be done with the whole system. Pretty much. But I have to tell you, um, in so-called Christianity, do we not see these things? And again, I've given you examples from the pulpit. I think about the church of the Middle Ages who was selling indulgences. If you were rich, you wanted to commit adultery, as long as you paid the church, you know, you, you peeled off those Benjamins, well, not back then, but um, you could do whatever you want. They'll absolve you of your sin. Well, the poor person couldn't sin as much because they couldn't give the church as much, much money. They couldn't grease their palms, right? I'm just talking, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> so, uh, what did that do? Indulgences sparked a reformation where Christians were fighting against Christians. Sad, isn't it? All these denominations had come out, um, the church, and they were literally bloodshed among... Imagine what, the, imagine what the Muslims and Jews thought when they saw Christians fighting against Christians. So this isn't relegated to the first century in Judaism. Think about uh, one point in time, there was the Eastern with the Byzantine Empire and the Western, the Roman Empire. And there was a Pope of the East and a Pope of the West. And the Pope of the East said, Pope of the West, you're under anathema. You're under a curse. God hates you. Pope of the West would say, that guy in the East, like, come on, people, what is this? Does this represent the Word of God? Religious. It's religious hypocrisy. It's re- religious, religious predation, so to speak. You know, and, and again, the, some of these internet preachers. You're poor. You have no money. These ministries will tell you, send your last $10 and we'll pray for you. How about find out who's poor? How about give them something, not ask for their money? I've told people in this church, I'm one of those weird pastors that says, you're good, don't worry about it. person's just barely scraping by. I don't want their money. You know what I'm saying? Where's the conscience? So that's what you have going on here. The house of prayer, verse 46 Versus the den of thieves. The house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56.7. And what Isaiah says, it, it elaborates more. God says through Isaiah that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Just like the Jewish people were supposed to be a light of God to bring all the pagans and the unbelievers into the fold. They were supposed to. They did a lot of times. They did it right a lot of times, right? You read the the Old Testament. Christians are supposed to do the same thing. What do we show in the world? Are we drawing people closer to God or are we pushing them away? Right? Those churches and people have told me and some of these churches are like clubs. You come in and if nobody knows you, nobody says hello to you. They don't, you know, it's like they don't want you there. Um, What are we showing the world? It's not a social club. It's, it's, It's a place where we worship God and hopefully bring people in. Um, the den of thieves. You, you want to know why they, they crucified Jesus? Uh, do we have enough evidence? <laughs> Here's more. The den of thieves, it was a place where thieves, Jesus said, you're like the den of thieves, right? Where thieves would, it was a, a stronghold. 
and all the thieves would come there, hide from the authorities, and plot how to exploit their next victims. Right? Put on my law enforcement hat. We did some raids on some houses where people had guns and drugs, and they were all together, hiding from law enforcement, plotting how to take advantage of people. You know, SWAT team, kick it in, right? Jesus was saying, you're like that den of thieves. <laughs> so um, the religious leaders weren't P-R-A-Y, praying with the people. They were P-R-E-Y, praying on the people. And you see all predatory religion, um, the signs of it in Matthew 23. Jesus goes into great detail. Sometimes a person comes to me, whether it's the young adults group or even at the church, and they're a little hostile, they have a little bit of an attitude, and somebody afterwards, an onlooker will say to me, "What, Pastor Joe, you're really patient. That person was clearly disrespectful. And I will say, I sensed from the Lord that somewhere in their life, some religious leader did something to them. I said, so I want to show them another side. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's how I feel. If somebody comes up to me and they just have an attitude and they're, they're challenging, I try to see beneath that. And I try to see why. It's almost like they, they sort of want God, but they're not trusting anybody here or any leader. I get it. I'm okay with it. So some of you have said, I want you to meet my friend, but I want to tell you ahead of time. And they, they tell me all the things. They're kind of rude. They're, I'm like, listen, just bring them. I was a cop for 25 years. <laughs> I'll be fine, I'm sure. So, um, you know, and unfortunately, we sometimes have to do damage control or peel the layers off the onion of somebody who has been hurt due to religion. And some of you have told me in private some of your stories, and they're heartbreaking. Okay, last part before we close is the temple building and the so the temple was in the center and I would say concentric circles but the courts weren't completely circular they were concentric surroundings and there were several of these courts the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles were supposed to come in and learn about God and that's where the corruption took place that's really tragic so the place where we want to be an open door to unbelievers, right? That's where the money, you know, you imagine walking through it. You're a Gentile and you're seeking God and you hear the coins. Going into the, the sacks and, you know, the, the scales that were probably off, uh, the animals in the cages. It probably was chaos. And all the Gentiles wanted to do was learn about God. You wonder why Jesus was upset, Right? Abuse of religionism. I, don't, I think I made the point a whole bunch of times. 47 through 48. And he was Jesus. So let's go back to Jesus. Let's go back. Let's start with the things we learned. The misrepresentation of God. You see that all through Scripture, even in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians was a terrible church. <laughs> the, t- the, the church of Corinth was acting like Corinth. Um, it, it, it had the negative influences of the world that had gotten into it. And you couldn't tell the difference if you walked into the church of Corinth or you walked into some house of ill repute. The same things. And Apostle Paul was livid, if you read 1 Corinthians. He went and, and another thing, sexual immorality, and another thing, bad witness, and another thing, you're taking each other to court, and another thing, you don't love each other, and you got factions. My goodness, some of the stuff sometimes you see today 
in some churches. They're all fighting all the time. There's these factions that are against each other. Uh, so now we're back to Jesus. Right? He always showed us the way. It says he was teaching daily. So regardless of that, um, he, the Bible tells us in, in Mark and Matthew that he even stopped people from moving their equipment. Jesus didn't sin, but he was not going to allow this to continue. And believe it or not, but they listened to him. He turned their tables over. Nobody, just, nobody was going to arrest them. Again, he wasn't sinning. He was like this, you're, you're putrefying God's house. You've got to stop doing this. Okay, I'll try this one more time. And he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. But they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Three out of three is true representation of God. Now, people get confused and sometimes there's fringe belief systems that will say, well, Jesus wasn't God. You can't read John. You can't read Revelation. You can't read anything and come to any conclusion that Jesus was other than deity. Well, Jesus prayed to the Father. Okay, Jesus' mannerisms, kenosis, right, were different when he was on the earth because not only was he fully God, but he took on fully humanity. And a lot of the things Jesus taught the disciples and by extension us, was he said, this is how you pray. This is how you talk to the Father. These are, don't use these vain repetitions and memorized prayers. He, Jesus said all this in the Scripture. So he was showing us the way. You think as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, you think he's praying to him? He's not. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all one. But when he came to the earth, it was, a, it was different. It was, it was sort of a learning curve. And, and sometimes some of the fringe belief systems get confused about that. Okay, So he was um, fully God, but he was also showing us how to represent ourselves to others as God's representatives. So he's, you see this Matthew 21, it says, it adds that, it's not in here, but Matthew adds, and Jesus did wonderful things. Matthew sees the same thing and he's like, Oh, let me just put it in the category of Jesus did wonderful things. I, I can't even go into all the detail. John 21 says, if I was to tell you all the things Jesus did in his ministry, all the books of the world couldn't contain it. So I had to be selective, right? Uh, Mark chapter 11, it said that the people were astonished at his, his teachings. As a matter of fact, we look back and we see that the people marveled because they were used to religious teachings. I was used to religious teachings. And then I went to a church that was teaching the Bible and I was astonished. I'm like, wow, why didn't they ever teach me this stuff? Why didn't they go into the Bible? The Bible is so refreshing. Wow, I'm learning so much. I can't believe it. So, you know, it said that when Jesus taught, he spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. So people were like, oh, the religious system, okay. We want to get close to God, so we're going to come with our families today. But they weren't getting anything out of it. Historical note. The religious class and some are quasi-religious of when we look at the Sadducees, the priesthood, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sakari, the Herodians, they all faded into history. However, the following of Jesus, communion, the rites that are biblical have lasted for the last 2,000 years. It survived war. It survived famine. It survived plague. It survived persecution. And it even survived COVID. Imagine that. And it's still here. So my question is, are we representing God the way Jesus taught us? And I'm not, I'm not here to be judgmental. That's not how I'm saying it. Because like I said, in, in my years of growing as a Christian, I made so many mistakes and um, 
Sometimes you hope people forget some of the dumb things you do. And even today, I'm not perfect. Are we bringing people closer to God or driving them further away from Him? Or maybe we're neutral. Maybe we're not doing anything. Are we living such a self-centered life that we don't even consider what personal ministry looks like? It's a question. Well, certainly if we look at this group of people who are misrepresenting God as the standard, we could always say we're okay. But are we praying and asking the Lord, how can we be a part of the bigger picture? Can I tell you something? I found that when, when the economy was great and inflation was low and everybody was making money hand over fist, I actually found that it was a little harder to preach the gospel because people, like, they're insulating themselves. Today, I don't have to go but a few dozen feet before I can run into somebody who's receptive to hear. And even if it's, oh, Pastor Joe, you know, it's game time. What, what do I say? What do I bombard them with? You know, Bible bullets. It's not about that. Sometimes it's just building a bridge. Sometimes people just need to talk. You ever sit in a waiting room in a doctor's office and the look on people's faces and you start talking and you'd be surprised this perfect stranger starts opening up to you. This is the world we live in. This is the country we live in. Our leaders are so focused on globalism that they're not seeing the suffering of their people and their constituents that, um, that have voted for them. So there is a lot of work that we can do. And there comes a point in life where we step out of the board game of religion and living for ourselves and seriously represent God and help to change people's lives for the better. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.